Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about eliminating screen conflicts in your home. This is Melanie Hempy, and I hope everyone is doing well today. If you're new, I'm so glad you found us. If you've been around for a while, we're so thrilled you're back. If you know anything about what we do over here at Screen Strong, you know how passionate we are about using the foundation of brain science and medical research and child development to guide our recommendations about screen use for our families. I think most of you know that I have had a lot of experience making a lot of mistakes in my own house, but with my nursing background and all of my friends in the medical community, it's been really fun to gather all this um, um, wonderful research. And today we are thrilled to have a very, very special guest with us. Her name is Sarah Demoff. She is a friend of Dr. Doug Gentile, who you know is a good friend of ours. And um, actually, we heard just recently on a podcast, Sarah is a clinical child psychologist. She is an expert on children's media use and problematic media use (laughs) in adolescents. And she is the director of the Family Health Lab at Central Michigan University. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm telling you, the first time we met, I knew that we had to dive into some more conversations. And so I'm just really thrilled that you're here today. Please start just by telling us about your work and and really why did you get passionate about this issue of kids and screens? Yes. So um, I had the the privilege and and opportunity to study um, with some some great researchers in the area of media effects when I was in graduate school. And so I was really, um, really introduced to the the impact of, of media and screens on on us um, on on young adults and adolescents when I was in graduate school thinking about what I wanted to pursue for you know my first thesis project or for my dissertation mm-hmm. um, and so I really got interested in that because of some some amazing mentors that I've had and then when I started doing my clinical work it just became so apparent that it went beyond just how what we see on TV or what we see in video games impacts us it's also you know, at that time, we were we had the release of the iPhone and um, tablets, and and it was just kind of culminating all of these different um, opportunities for more screens in the home. And um, whereas bef- before, I you know was really focused on on older adolescents and 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 um, the content um, uh, on TV and video games, and then and how it impacted their you know adolescents' beliefs about themselves and others. And then I started to see that, yeah, that, that's very important to understand how what we see on TV or in video, video games impact how we see ourselves and others. But we also have this other issue, um, and that's that we have these mobile devices now that um, are in the hands of younger children. And so it went even beyond just the content piece, but also the interaction piece. What does... What do these devices um, mean for our relationships with others? Um, what does this mean for other types of mental health concerns that um, the children with whom I was working um, kind of had these comorbid issues where it was both anxiety or depression and problems online, or it was um, oppositional defiant behaviors in, in, in children and video game, um, problematic video game play. And so 
it was really this kind of culmination of um, my, my research interests and my, and my clinical um, passion that just kind of blended together. And I, I moved away from you know, more of the, the, the research on kind of broader, you know, what is, what's the impact of media content on, you know, body image or um, aggression, aggressive behaviors and whatnot, um, to what do these mobile devices mean for, for clinical populations, for the, the kids that I work with and for their parents. Um, and so I started to really incorporate my passion in this research um, with my clinical um, expertise. And that that brought me to developing some, I think, really cool measures for, for parents and for clinicians to use to identify um, what's problematic and how does this intersect with other challenging behaviors that we see in children and adolescents. And importantly, um, can we use this opportunity in, in working with our with our, our children and adolescents in, in clinical work to also target or address problems that relate to screen time? Because I it's it would be a rare instance where I'd have someone come in that didn't have something related to their media use or screen time behaviors wow. that we should try, we should try to change. Isn't that that's just kind of mind boggling. <laughs> When, I mean, because I agree with you totally. I like what we see boots on the ground here with all the work that we do. I totally agree with you. But isn't that interesting for you as a research person to to see and to notice that too, which I imagine is the reason why you get so motivated to do all these research studies is because you see it over and over and over again. Like it's not, it's just so um, fascinating to me. Let's talk, I want to talk about your research um, in a minute, but let's start off by talking about that great clip that I, I saw that you did on the Today Show. So if anyone's interested in watching this, you can go to Sarah's website. We'll give you that at the end. But um, that was a great little show clip. And just that interview, you you were, um, it was just fascinating for me to watch that, how you kind of carry out this research. But then helping parents play with their child. This was so interesting to me, the thing that popped out right away was how we don't know, how parents don't know how to play with their kids anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, is this something that I'm just seeing or is it something that you notice? Like media use has sort of replaced a big chunk of really important child development. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think what I've been lucky to be able to do is really uh, combine my 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 clinical um, expertise with um, my research on on screen time and media use and why I think that's so important and why I really want more clinical psychologists and social workers and and, and nurses to consider um, including and, and studying media use and screen time and in, in the work that they do and with when, with whom they work um, is because so much of some of the barriers to making changes around screen time and media use tie back to challenges maybe in parenting, challenges yeah. um, with certain risk factors in um, in our children. So, you know, if you have uh, a dysregulated child and and you're struggling to figure out how do I how do I get them to comply? How can I uh, navigate um, these these challenges in, in our house when there's other stress or there's you know families that who have parents that are they're working multiple jobs? It's it's really hard mm-hmm. um, to to navigate what um, the reality is right now, especially even more so now with the pandemic. And so I found that um, for for a lot of families there was so much stress, um, and if I took away just 
immediately um, the screens, um, there would be, I think, a, a, a rupture in the in the clinical um, mm-hmm. relationship and the progress because until we make sure that the parents have they feel like they're confident in their skills with managing meltdowns related to screen screen time and, and managing noncompliance. Um, it, it could be an uphill battle. And so mm-hmm. what I found, um, you know, with, with families coming in here, they, they into our clinic, they may have um, some behavioral issues that that we need to address before we can make some of the the bigger changes related to screens. And so what you saw in the Today Show clip was we were showing um, really the first component um, of our intervention, which is that's just first help build these what we call child-centered skills. So that let's help parents learn how to play with their kids, yeah. have positive interactions, um, be focused on warm, supportive um, interactions so that we have that foundation. And then we'll yeah. move into, okay, how do we set some limits? How do we do you know, time out from positive reinforcement um, so that if there is non-compliance, when it gets to the, the media you know, behavior change, um, they have those skills. And so yeah. I found in, in my research um, before I um, became a faculty member that a lot of parents are feeling like, you know, there's this tension, right? So we don't want to have screens around all the time. We, we don't want to be so dependent on it. But also we have so many of these other factors that, that make it so hard to change. And so for me, what, what my kind of my goal and my, um, you know, my passion is really, you know, how do we help parents feel um, more successful in their parenting, especially when, you know, they, when children could be defiant or have emotion dysregulation and, you know, we want the best for our children and, and we do what we can do. But if we can give parents the skills to maybe change up um, how they address screen time and, and see that, wow, my, my child actually really loves to just spend time with me without a screen. I mean, if you don't have those experiences, it may sound ridiculous to you that, no, there's no way that my child will want to spend time with me compared to a screen. <laughs> but it's actually true. They, they yes. do. They want feedback from you. They want attention and they want um, they want to have a shared experience. And so when we when, when I saw that um, and, and, and when I saw how improving some of the, the parenting strategies kind of trickled down into um, being successful in changing um, the, the media parenting practices, that gave me a lot of confidence that no matter what stressors are in your life, um, no matter what some of the barriers are to change, I feel like there are there is such a menu of options of behaviors that we can work on changing that there's something that we can do, even if it's not all at once, we can make a change related to some nighttime screen time media use. We can make a change related to um, in being more present when your child's on um, watching TV or playing video games. You know, we can um, foster some small behavior change and get that momentum for the bigger, the bigger changes that parents want to make. So sometimes I feel like just showing parents that, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a skill to learn. You can learn it and maybe challenging at first, but once you get some success, we can tackle some of those larger issues. Yeah. And um, one thing I've seen just in, in our work is that when parents, me included years ago, but uh, you know, when, when parents use screen time as a reward, that becomes a real big problem because you're training them to want time away, you know, from you as a reward. Mm -hmm. And so we always tell parents, that you should, that rewards in your family should always be 
things that you value. And the most important thing most people value is time with other humans. And so the reward should be time with mom and dad, like special outing or some kind of special time with them. And in the, um, in the video, in the today show, one of the statements was that the, I can't remember who said it, but the worst form of screen time is the screen time that replaces time with parents. I thought that was just a brilliant statement. Um, It's not that all screen time is bad, but when parents should and could be interacting and you're doing screens instead, that's a problem. If your kids are using screens to learn, you know, something at school, that's different, but that's, that's the worst form is when it's being used to replace time with parents. And, and then toward the end, in the little outtake there, when they were talking on the Today Show, you know, one of the gals said, well, what do you say to parents who say that it's the only moment I I have to take a shower or do the laundry, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder what you would say to that, because I feel like that is something that our culture sort of you know, just sort of tells us that, well, it's okay to use for all this, you know, as a babysitter, but it's really not. What do you say to the parent who's listening about that? So I would, I would want to know about a couple of factors that we could potentially promote that would help remove the the screens in those situations. And so I think for me, um, I would want to know, and and what I do in my practices, I want to know all about all the media parenting um, practices that are in place. So Mm -hmm. if there are limits. I want to know about them, but then if they, if screens are being used to kind of help cope with, um, you know, a busy household and needing to get things done, I want to know: is there another caregiver in the home? If there's another caregiver, can we work with that caregiver to have special playtime with your child while you're getting other things done? Um, is there an older sibling who likes to play with with your with the younger sibling that can? engage around play or something not screen-based to kind of help them get out of your hair so you can get things done. I also want to, um, you know, highlight that for, for a lot of the families, there there aren't a whole lot of resources out there um, for their kids or they can't afford, you know, different types of toys and activities. And I, I want to know what resources are in the area where we can get books or other low cost or no cost activities so that we can make sure that those are in place. So I think for some families, it's, you know, I have, I have several kids. I, it's, it's going to be a little nutty if I, you know, don't give them a screen to accomplish this task. But if we give parents the skills um, to set limits and to have children comply with expectations or when mom or dad is doing, you know, the dishes or trying to clean, you know, this is, this is the activity you're going to do um, and have it not be a screen, have parents feel um, that they've been able to do that successfully. I think there'll be a change, but I think the challenge is like, what do I do if I have, um, you know, really hyperactive, energetic kids under the age of 10 and there's no way there's a feeling that I can't get stuff done unless I kind of get them, you know, out of, out of my way or, you know, out of the the interfering with the, with the chores. And so I do understand that that's complicated, but part of what I like to do is be creative and figure out, well, what are some alternatives? Um, I think if we can really encourage um, parents to spend time each day with their children engaging in play where it's really child driven and child centered, where the child takes a lead, um, where the parent is praising behaviors and expressing enjoyment. 
we definitely want that in place at the very minimum, um, as well as throughout the day, an enriched kind of sort of balance of activities. Mm -hmm. If we have all that in place and some other risky media use is, is not happening, if every now and then a parent allows their child to go on the screen because something's come up and they need to do something, yes. I mean, I, I understand that there can be some rare exceptions where that may mm -hmm. happen. And so I try to also be flexible with parents because I think for some parents, hearing that would be like, oh, there's no way that's going to work. And so I try to have some flexibility and, and see, you know, what are the barriers and, and really talk mm -hmm. about what ha have you tried this or what makes that hard to have them not um, have a, you know, have a screen in front of them when you're trying to do this and kind of problem solve around that. And I think providing more resources, um, having another caregiver around, um, choosing when to do certain activities um, can kind of help mitigate that. Yeah, no, that's really good. And to have the alternative um, ideas and activities already kind of lined up, even if it's just like a special box of toys that only comes out once a week when, you know, mom has to do something. Um, there's a lot of tips that we have through our resources that we use that we help parents, you know, figure out other things to do. And, you know, I think about it, Sarah, as, as you're talking and, you know, I have four children, my oldest is in his late twenties and there, it wasn't that long ago where we didn't have this problem because mm -hmm. we, you know, so there was such a thing as parenting without screens, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, although, yep. you know, the TV was the big thing back then, right. um, you know, where, you know, you'd put them on the couch and they'd watch, you know, Sesame Street or something. So there was a time, you know, I, I like to tell young moms that and mm -hmm. dads that, you know, you can raise your kids actually without screens. We've done it for many years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's been very successful. But um, at the end of the today segment, one of the gals uh, or someone said, you know, we have to take the blame out of it because we didn't know even 10, 20 years ago when all this started to become a bigger problem that we can't, we can't blame ourselves. Of course, this is the way it all happened. And I understand what they mean that, sure, we don't want to blame parents for this terrible um, <laughs> hurricane that's hit our family. But at the same time, I have thought about this a lot. And I'm kind of curious, not that we need to blame anybody. It's not about blaming, but it is my job as a mom to not fall into these traps because it is sort of easy to fall into them. It's certainly not my kid's fault, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not, again, it's not about blaming, but I do think that we do, I guess the better word would, would be that we do have to take responsibility as parents to identify when there's a problem, to know what the warning signs are, know what the red flags are, and to constantly be looking for ways that we can make it better. Right. Yeah. And, and I think um, what I, you know, to piggyback off of that, I feel like it's, all adults' responsibilities, actually, in our society to to be aware of this, that this is a major mm -hmm. concern, and to use whatever opportunities you have in your work with children, if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, if you're a community leader, to, to talk about these issues. Because I think mm -hmm. one of the challenging um, aspects of all this is that there hasn't been a large-scale public health um, intervention approach in our in our country related to this, and whereas we we've had that kind of um, initiative for for different uh, other health issues, right? 
Hmm. To, to address concerns related to literacy or, um, you know, risks yeah. for substance abuse and whatnot. I think we need a, a very similar one for this because I what, what I spend a lot of time doing is 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 just first helping people learn how to have these conversations with kids, whether they're your own children or children that you're mentoring or teaching, supporting or providing therapy to. I feel like because it's such a major issue. Um, and there hasn't been a targeted response um, at a universal level that we have to take every opportunity we have when we're working with children or when we're raising children to to integrate lessons about technology balance, lessons about how media affects us because it has huge implications. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's also what I, I think is important is in terms of responsibility. I think as our as our as a whole culture, we need to more readily be able to have these conversations and hold some technology companies accountable for predatory sorts of marketing and tactics right. to get children um, on the screens. And and I and I think you know the, the hesitancy I have sometimes with you know, I mean, obviously parents, you're, you're the most important people in, in your child's life, obviously. But I also think sometimes um, corporations or um, uh, certain um, companies have used that as an excuse to not um, hold themselves accountable. So like, mm -hmm. if, oh, parents have com complete control. So I don't really have to follow or in adhere to or agree to regulations because parents mm -hmm. are um, the ones that have the ultimate decision. Yes, we, we want them to, of course, but also some of the, the, the tactics used make it really hard for, for parents to navigate, especially when the child, the child is high risk. And that, and that's as a clinical psychologist, the, the primarily the the families yeah. with whom I work is the children who already are having some some challenges in their development or emotion regulation or behavior. So I think we all play a role. We all play mm -hmm. a part. And when I think of it that way, when I when it seems like we can come together to address these issues, I feel very empowered. And I hope that parents and other people do too, because I think the message that so many of us get is there's no hope. So why don't you just give up? And that yeah. is not what we want. I hear that so yeah. often. Um, mm -hmm. And so I am constantly trying to battle up against messaging around, you know, technology is all that your kids want to do. I mean, or going online is the only thing that's enjoyable. Well, for some kids that are having problems with screen use, yes, that may seem to be the case. That's a, that's a red flag right there. But that isn't the case for um, most children. And when we have that mentality, that's when we when, that's when we start to kind of give up or, or not try these different approaches to reduce. Yeah, it's just a lose lose all the way around. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And it does seem like a huge boulder. And it is, of course it is, because it's everywhere and it's really easy for parents to get discouraged. But what I'm so excited about is having you on today and talking about your the research in it, because without the research and without the work, I, I, I hope you understand how important your work is, because without that as a foundation, there can be no movement. We have to have the research. We We can't just operate off of opinions. We have to have clear guidelines and research that stands the test of scrutiny. You know, we, we can't just make stuff up as we go, which is kind of right. what's been happening, honestly, um, because we've had to make it up as we go because nobody knew, you know, I didn't know 20 years ago what was happening to my kids, you know, right. but now yeah. with the research we have. So let's talk about some of your research. I'm 
so fascinated with all this. And I, and I love the fact that you have done a lot of research with adolescents and eating problems and how that's tied to screens. I know you have one adolescents, um, addictive phone use associations with eating behaviors. Um, that study, let me just thumb through a couple here, addictive phone use and academic performance in adolescents. Oh my goodness. Um, there's more, let's see, there's another one, um, that I was flipping through excessive use of mobile devices in children's physical health. These are, these are the studies that parents really are interested in. And at ScreenStrong, we try to take these, um, studies and this information and break it down so they can understand it because most people don't have time. Like I do, I love to sit around and read studies all day long. So Mm -hmm. talk to us about some of your research pieces and talk to us about some of the ones that are your favorites. Yeah. So, um, and, and just let you know, it should be updated, but if you ever want access to the full article, I know that some parents can obviously don't have access to some of our, our journals um, because they're mm-hmm. really expensive. And so what I've done is I've put um, uh, PDFs up there. And so if, if you're ever interested yes. Um, in, in doing like a, a post or sharing about um, a summary for parents um, okay. about what we found. I'm, I'm happy to kind of direct you to that. If one's not available, let me know, but they should be up to date. Yeah, um, so what, what, what really, um, I think, kind of transformed my approach to uh, studying uh, children's screen time and media use was um, some of the work that I did as, as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan. I had some some amazing mentors there who were from um, disciplines different from mine. So I worked with a behavioral, um, a developmental behavioral pediatrician. I worked with a developmental psychologist, and I had this, these great opportunities to 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 see from from different perspectives where we can potentially address some of these 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 um, problems with, with media use and screen time. And so through those partnerships, I, I really started to see that at the time, standard practice was really to, to recommend a certain number of hours of screen time a day. And what I was finding was that for some families, the, the limits were unreasonable or they felt like there was no hope for them to be able to reach it. And so they kind of just shut it out. Um, for other parents, they thought, well, it's less than two hours, so it's it's not bad. And it felt like a very kind of black and white sort of situation where it wasn't really fitting with the clinical experiences that I was having. And I was wondering, like, how can we better pinpoint what the risks are related to screen time beyond just number of hours? Um, because there's so much more that matters. And so what I love doing in, in those um, on the, my postdoctoral fellowship was learning from families, learning from parents about what are some of the, you know, the challenges to changing screen time and when does problematic media use emerge? How does that, how does that occur? Um, and, and can we find a way beyond just asking about number of hours um, to, to pinpoint that, to, to help parents realize, oh yeah, mm-hmm. this is the problem. And the, and the biggest piece where I've kind of blended my, my clinical background with my research um, interests is identifying, you know, assessing um, and really, you know, pinpointing who who has the most risk for, for problematic media use and and what are those signs. And so mm. kind of pulling from my my clinical experiences, I, I even with television, you know, I was hearing from families like they have meltdowns when I try to shut it off. 
I can't set limits as, as well as I used to. Um, it seems like that's the only thing they want to do. And I, I started to hear more about how it wasn't just one screen. It was multiple screens. It was, well, they mm -hmm. want a game and they want to go on, on their tablet or they, they want a game and they're on their phone late at night. And so I started to see that um, it would start to get a little complicated for clinicians to be able to yeah. um, efficiently screen for this, right? So what I was hearing was there were similar profiles of problematic behaviors, regardless of what the screen was. And it made it clear to me that there's some sort of um, reward mechanism or, or something um, that is, regardless of the screen or the, the type of media, could create problems for families. And it kind of just depends on your screen of choice. So when we think about, you know, if we pull from the addiction literature and, and substance abuse, you know, we don't really um, necessarily focus on, you know, what type of alcohol someone drinks. We, we want to know, um, are they having problems with their functioning? So, um, and so I've started to see this as a, as a larger issue where it's dysregulated media use um, across different types of, of platforms or mm -hmm. um, uh, delivery um, systems. And so for me, um, you know, one of my favorite um, papers and one of the things that I'm, I'm really excited about is, is that problematic media use uh, measure paper came out, um, I think in 2017. And that was really kind of like the first my first attempt at trying to describe this this problematic media use um, in mm -hmm. children, and so we 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 know a lot about that. You know, when I was publishing that, we know a lot about gaming and adults and older adolescents having problems with media um, and their consumption and how it's interfering with their functioning. But I was seeing it with younger children, and I was hearing clinically that you know they're screening for amount of time but they're not getting at what some of the you know really challenging behaviors are and we might have more buy-in from parents if we say hey you know let's not focus on number of hours yet let's focus on how this is interfering with their child's life what's interfering with the family's mm -hmm. functioning um because that is what you know highlights to me that there's an issue and that changes need to occur um mm -hmm. So that that's something that I you know was was really excited um, about, um, as well as I, I have my first um, paper um, on like our theory. So my collaborators and I have a theory of how we believe problematic media use develops in childhood. So what are those mechanisms? What are those risk factors? Um, and you know ultimately you know uh, the goal is to have the support to test this theory and see you know is it are these risk factors really the ones that we want to make sure that we target, you know, at our pediatric pediatrician visits when, when the child is, you know, first born, are these the, the things that we want to screen for when we're working with, with children who are getting mental health um, care services. So for me, I kind of see this as um, it's, it's a process. Um, but, you know, I think um, by articulating what the risk factors are and the maintaining factors, what keeps kids um, engaged in problematic media use, that's so critical for tailoring and designing intervention treatments for mm. for these children and adolescents. Because if we don't know what the mechanism is, like right. leading to what? problematic use or maintaining it, it's hard to target that. And so so it, I'm, I'm very excited about that paper as well. So what are some of just off the top of your your head here, we won't hold you to anything, but what are some <laughs> yeah. of your gut feelings around what these risk factors are? So I definitely think, um, you know, 
and again, this is for more of a clinical population, but um, difficult temperament um, dysregulation um, it, with child behavior and emotion dysregulation in, in early childhood. You know, in some of my earlier research, we found that kids who, you know, when they were under age five, if they had uh, more challenging temperaments, more negative emotionality, um, more challenging to parent, as well as parents who were more lax in their setting restrictions or maybe were too harsh, um, those factors predicted later um, mealtime media use. And so we hear both parenting risks and child development risks that we would have some support for predicting later risky media use or problematic media use. So that, those are some examples. In terms of maintaining factors, you know, one of the things that 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 we see is that there's a cycle of reinforcement. So I use a lot of kind of behaviorism in, in our psychology field. It's, you know, if you reinforce a behavior, it's going to occur again. Um, and so we see this as very much behavioral, um, that if we keep reinforcing the use, if we, if, both for the parent and the child, it's going to be really hard to to stop that. And so we have to break that cycle of reinforcement um, by setting limits, by finding other activities that are enjoyable, by giving parents the skills to handle um, the, the negative reactions that will come when you when you start to make some change. Because right now, for so many children, that screen is so reinforcing that it is it's very hard to to imagine something else. But there is something else, and that's the parent, and that's other activities, and they will be enjoyable again. It's just that we have to break that reinforcement. And so, so those are some of the areas that you know I'm lucky enough to have amazing um, collaborators. This is definitely a community of researchers who are passionate about this, and I'm, I'm really grateful to be part of that community because. This is such a large issue. The more people who, who study this, the better. Like there is no, um, right. we need more people studying this. <laughs> and especially in, in my field in clinical psychology, um, I'm, you know, I'm one of the few researchers that, you know, is developing these interventions and, and the people with whom I work who are tailoring interventions to address this. I, I just get so excited because there's only so much I can do without additional resources and support. And so mm. I'm also all about mentoring the next generation of, um, of media researchers because mm. this is, I think, such a huge domain and it, it needs to get the attention it deserves. Yeah. And before, like I said, before we can make change and get this movement going and continue it, we've got to have this backbone. It's so critical to have the research. Talk a minute, just a second about, about the last time you and Doug and I talked about some of the symptoms of mm -hmm. screen addiction and kids. Talk about that, that project a little bit. What are y'all working yeah. on there? So we really want to identify what are the best indicators, the most accurate predictive um, signs that if, if a child or an adolescent or even a young adult says, yep, I do that, that, that tells us that there's something going on here related to an addiction or, or problematic media use. And so for us, I mean, you know, prior to, you know, some, some recent years, we focused a lot on the amount of hours. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, especially the pandemic, unfortunately, the, the, the average amount of screen time is so high that number of hours in and of itself may not be able to give us the best indication that there is a, is a problem or there could be a problem. And so um, I think for, for us, we want to know what are some other behaviors around your screen time or media use that you see your child doing or you experience because of your, your child's engagement with, with screens that mm -hmm. would tell us 
like to a, a greater certainty, this child is at high risk for developing internet gaming disorder or disordered um, media use, disre dysregulated media use. We want to be able to identify it before it gets to that level. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. thinking about this creatively and thinking about, you know, when we interview other clinicians and, and other people who are passionate about this, like like yourself, we, we want to hear what are some of those symptoms that we haven't been assessing, mm -hmm. that haven't been including. Um, for me, a lot of our conversation, Melanie, was just so like um, reinforcing because it was like, yes, that is that's exactly what I've seen, and that's what I'm I'm helping families deal with. And mm -hmm. I think some of the ones that kind of stick out to me as potential um, indicators that at least with with children that I'd love to follow up more on is really related to um, like hygiene and and toileting issues related to screen time you know, struggling at school, um, making statements about one's self-worth that are really tied into gaming. I mean, these are things I right. hear from clients, so it's very consistent, but it's not something that has found its way into the research. And so, um, again, we have to think outside the box and and bring people together who are, who are um, encountering this in their different roles in, in our world because it's such a, a new phenomenon. It's like a new disorder, you know? So right. it, it's not like we can kind of look back at our decades of research on this to say, yep, you know, this theory indicates that this would be a risk factor. This is new. So I'm really, I'm really excited to be able to investigate that and to really clarify what are the risk factors? Um, what are the symptoms? What, what makes up this disordered gaming or this problematic media use? And then importantly, um, you know, how does that look different in children compared to adults? Because that's something that is also challenging. Um, because mm -hmm. I think for, for some some indicators that you know adults have problems with gaming or other types of screen media use, the the symptoms for them aren't really the same for for children. And so again, really tying it into disruption of family life, um, creating mm -hmm. a stress you know you know immense stress added to the family because of of challenges with setting limits. Um, you know, physical altercations, meltdowns, um, property destruction related mm -hmm. to um, limits being set. So, so those types of items, um, they're more right. severe, but I think, you know, if something like that is endorsed. I, you know, have a, I'm predicting that that would be a really good uh, indicator that, that this needs to be targeted and they may have a risk for for that disorder. So if you're listening and you're a parent who is in our Screen Strong Families Facebook group, I will be putting a post up and maybe we can um, gather some more red flags for you, Sarah, because <laughs> yeah. I feel like in our group, we, there is such a wonderful, you know, diverse group of parents in there. And um, what's so fascinating to me is when I speak with someone here in the States or even in another part of the world, they are, they're, they're struggling with the same exact thing. Like mm -hmm. it's the same thing that parents see over and over and over. And um, so if you're listening, I would love for you to start thinking about some of the signs and, and maybe red flags that you see in your own house and be looking for that post. And let's, let's help Sarah. We'll put a list together of some things that we see. I know when I talked with Sarah and Doug um, earlier, uh, you know, it was really fascinating to for me to pull from the years that I've seen and worked with parents on this. And you're right. We have to do this together. We have to, we're just in the baby stages of figuring this out. So um, exactly. we'd be happy to help you with any of your research. I'm sure that there are parents in our group that 
you know, are just having their aha moments <laughs> and they're realizing what's happening. And we would love to help you with any of that research. Gosh, our time is already running out. Um, but what I want to talk before we before we close, can you just mention in your experience the what what your feelings are around the value of a detox and uh, just doing a, a a digital detox with kids in general? Because I am quite sure you have seen some really great results from that. Yeah. So, um, well, I was really excited to hear about your your Screen Strong Challenge and and you know, really recently I, I've had this awesome um, experience working with teachers and helping them incorporate into their health classes, into their health curricula, um, subjects related to, to exactly what we've talked, we're talking about, how to have balance, um, how to, how to know if your, your screen time is, is in interfering with your life, your functioning. And I got to tell you that we work with middle school students. Um, they love talking about this. They, they want to know, they want to engage around this, this, these conversations. Um, for some of them, um, they, they've already had phones um, and they can definitely identify. Yes, that I could see that, that having an impact on me. And so I feel so optimistic about this next generation of, of children because um, something is, is getting to them about um, why why we need to be more concerned about how screens are impacting our lives. Mm. What would be would be awesome is if with the teachers um, that we're working with and, and the students is for them to try the Screen Strong Challenge to see you know if maybe you don't know yet how much it's impacting you until it, it, mm. it goes away, right? So mm -hmm. um, so for, for us, some of the activities we do, um, we kind of do simulations of this is what happens when you're on your phone late at night and you can't focus as well um, the next day. Um, and we do some of those experiments with them. But this this challenge is a great, I think, um, learning opportunity uh, for, for adolescents, for, for children to see what's different when I don't have my screen? You know, what, what mm -hmm. do I notice more of? Um, you know, we yeah. hear from, from some kids, um, I've been doing some research again, um, I'm more of a, a, in a clinical arena related to what happens when, you know, we have adolescents who are um, hospitalized and they have their phones taken away. What are some of their responses, positive and negative? And they have both. I mean, they, they want their screens, but they also see, wow, like I'm not as worried about what's happening on social media yes. or wow, I don't have to take, I don't have to think about, oh my gosh, should I not respond to someone? So it could be even a variety of um, um, relief <laughs> that you can experience yes. taking a break. And, um, you know, one thing that we're trying to do is, 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 is help um, teens like have a, have a break and see what do you notice? What's different? What what consumes your mind? What are you thinking about or ruminating about so much when you have screens available that you're not now? And I think for for especially for adolescents, um, that is really tied into social interactions. And so yeah. I think um, having an opportunity to take a break and 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 whether it be for a week or longer, um, it could be a great indication to them. I may have a problem or wow, life is better when I'm not constantly worried about this. Um, and so, yeah. so for some youth, when, when we try to make these behavior change um, changes, we, we, we definitely, you know, give them some, some guidance, some, some um, information in advance saying, Hey, 
you're not going to be using your screens at this time. I know your friends may be expecting you. Um, it'd be even better if, if a friend group could do this together to see um, kind of how how it, it feels for for their friendships and, and ways that they can stay connected without their technology. And so I, I think there's a, a lot of benefits that can come from it. Yeah, thanks. Um, we're seeing the same thing. We love what you just said about the schools because we are actually promoting this in schools. We just had a school do this, uh, I think last month, and we're going to be getting the essays back that the kids wrote. It was a group of juniors and seniors. And the fun thing was, like you just said, it was a group of them doing it together. So they had their friends, you know, it wasn't like just one kid maybe doing Uh the challenge, but they had their friends to um, talk to and they didn't feel is strange, I guess. Um, So that was really cool when the schools did it. So if you're a teacher out there, be sure and contact um, me more about how to implement this in your school. And the other thing, the other word that you said that I love, that what you said was the freedom and, or you said something, or maybe I just thought you said that, (laughs) but um, Mm -hmm. freedom is the word, I guess, that I love to use around the challenge because I don't see it as a restriction. I don't mm-hmm. see it as a limit. I see it as you're going to, you're going to shut this door, but then you're going to open these five other doors over here and your kids are going to be able to do all these things that they haven't done. Plus they're going to have the freedom to do them. They're going to have the freedom not to be in the drama. They're going to have this freedom to take a break and just relax and see what life is like, even just having downtime. So we like to look at it more as that kind of a benefit in giving your kids some freedom as opposed to taking everything away, if that yeah. makes sense. And and I think what, what also is really helpful about this approach is that, um, you know, if you think about it, if you see that things are actually okay and that the world doesn't fall apart without you responding to someone, you still have your friends. Um, I think it also helps kind of uh, do a little paradigm shift in our, in our, in our minds about what, how much constant connection do I really need? And and you see that you don't really need that much. And once you see that, yeah, actually I didn't use my phone all through the night and I actually haven't been engaging with my friends in social media and I still have friends. Um, some of these misconceptions <laughs> can be addressed and sometimes you, you can't challenge some of those inaccurate thoughts about the, um, what you need to do on social media and how to, to stay constantly connected until you, you try it and, and see what happens. And so again, I kind of feel like it's a great way for, for adolescents to have that, um, experience where they can say, yeah, I, I did it. And, I still have my friends and all the fears I had related to missing out on things um, were not really supported. You know, it's one really interesting thing that teenagers say after they do this is, and I never thought of this. And so we can talk about it some more later. But um, one thing that they have told me is they get this renewed excitement about seeing their friends because mm-hmm. when they're on social media, they're constantly connected, yada, 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 just every minute. And, and they didn't, they don't really say it in these words, but they're kind of getting tired of their friends. Right. So mm-hmm. it's that absence making the heart grow fonder. Yes. And so they get this renewed thing. They go to school. They're like, oh, 
it was so fun to see my friend because I hadn't talked to her in 12 hours. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah. What's so interesting is that even as adults, I think we feel that way too. Like I took a break from watching, I think it was probably the news. Um, I just like, I'm not going to have it all the time. I'm going to take a break. And I'm like, oh, I actually want to watch something on TV. It wasn't just yeah. there. Like, you, yeah, you actually do find that you get actually more enjoyment out of something yeah. Can't do all the time, and so yeah, yeah. You, yeah I think that's a great point. And I, I've really <laughs> learned a lot from that first group of teenagers that went through this challenge. So if y'all are um, out there not knowing what the challenge is, go to our website. You can see what it is. Um, let us know if you have any questions on that. We need to wrap up, Sarah. We are just thrilled to have you today, and um, I would just love for you. I'm putting you on the spot. I know, but I would love for you to share just one final thing for our audience. Any any encouragement or any tip or anything, um, words of wisdom from Sarah, can you share before we yes. leave? Parents, you are the most important individuals in um, your child's life. That is without a doubt, that's based on science research. We know that hearing, you know, concerns that technology is, is ruling everything and we, we won't have as much of an opportunity to be with our children. That's a, that's a misnomer. That's not, that doesn't have to be the case. Um, there can be changes you make and they could actually not be too large. They could be small changes that can really start to improve, you know, your relationships with your children and um, in your family. And so I just want to say that it may seem at times really hard. Um, it may seem like you're powerless compared to the, the um, rewards that may come from gaming and, and whatnot, but that's, that's not the case. People are more powerful um, mm -hmm. and, and parents are more powerful. It's just having to kind of shift up what we're doing to, to get back on track. And um, I'm confident that if you take some of these approaches, um, if you work on um, improving some of the, the, the skills around setting limits, and, and take some risks, um, you'll, you'll see some benefits. It just may be hard at first. Oh, thank you. I wrote all that down. Oh, that was so good. Thank you so much, Sarah. We are so honored to have you today. Thank you for spending this time with us. It's been my pleasure. And, and I, I love the work that you're doing. Keep it up. And if there's anything I can do to, to keep the, the movement going, you just let me know. Oh, we will definitely be in touch and um, our parents will too. We'll definitely help you with anything you need for your research too. I hope you have all enjoyed listening today. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share our podcast with your friends and head over to our website to learn more about our Screen Strong Challenge that we've been talking about today. And make sure you join our Screen Strong Families Facebook group where we help families just like you navigate their way around the best solutions to get their kids back and re-engage in the real world and in your family. Remember, we have your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd and stay strong. Mm -hmm.